Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. We're the professional association for UK film and TV directors. No matter the format, no matter the genre, our featured directors share their approach to the craft. We hope you enjoy. Tonight we have in conversation Molly Manning-Walker and Michael Pierce on how to have sex. Evening. Congratulations. Thank you. What a great debut. What control of I don't I mean performance, tone, camera and lighting, obviously, music and sound. It just feels like it's so assured and confident and sensitive and tender. I just think it's really commendable what you've achieved. Um, we don't have a super uh, large amount of time for the Q&A. But I, wanted, I do want to start at the very beginning. I think when it's a debut director, a lot of people are interested in the origin story. So can you tell us what was that, what was that moment? When did you decide to become a filmmaker? Was there a particular formative experience? Did you watch a specific film and thought, that's what I want to do? Um, I saw The Lion King at um, the local cinema, which had like a snooker ball in it and you could only get um, Bombay mix instead of popcorn <laughs> and um, you can like smell smoke because everyone was smoking in the snooker hall and that was when I was like cinema so cool. <laughs> what age were you? Well I looked it up the other day and I was quite young so I, it must have been a replay. I think it was a replay. I think I was about eight. So you knew you wanted to be a filmmaker from eight years of age? Or was there another? If I wanted to be a filmmaker, <laughs> I was like, cinema's really cool. <laughs> and then, and then um, I started sort of making little documentaries as a teenager. I embedded with Occupy in London, the political movement, and with a photography camera, thinking I was going to take photos, that, but that I could record video and ended up making a documentary. And then um, people were saying, I was the best way to um, continue to make films and went to Bournemouth Film School. That's what I did. Really? Yeah. Went to Bournemouth. Went to Bournemouth and then to the NFTS, which yeah, I think you did as well. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you went through the cinematography route. And so what drew you to that? What's, was there something specific where you thought, I need to be behind the camera and create these images? Yeah, so I started doing documentary and cinematography at Bournemouth because I thought I wanted to shoot my own documentaries. And then um, quickly realised that none of the documentary guys got any money. So it was like, and the fiction teams were getting sets and Alexas and all this lighting equipment. And I was like, oh, I'd way rather do that. Um, and then ended, the only way to guarantee that I could shoot my grad film was to write it. So I ended up writing my grad film, shooting it, and my best friend directed it. So it was kind of always in the background. And then he ended up being commercial director and we just shot those commercials. And then I went back to them, yes. Oh, okay. So you kind of found yourself doing cinematography and fiction through film school, just sort of by chance, by the, yeah, the courses that you were on. And then what was the impulse to go into directing? How long ago did that happen? And then at the end of NFTS, they do a thing where um, they were sort of saying that there's been like Lynn Ramsey before in school and maybe there's another one hiding, you don't know. And so they did like a Kickstarter campaign where they sort of promoted your Kickstarter and they chose three projects. Um, and one of my and I 
that was good thanks to you I, I pitched as a project and um, and it went from there and then, yeah I made that and it was kind of a therapy piece I, I didn't really think of it as it becoming a career and I guess I had the luxury of shooting so I, it wasn't really pressured um, and then and then it got into Cannes I couldn't really hide <laughs> um, so yeah and now would you go back if Denny Villeneuve says he wants you to shoot June 3? Would you go, oh, okay, yes. or are you a director now? And... No, I'm here for you, Denny. <laughs> um, I would definitely go back, um, and I hope to go back. I'm really bad at sitting still, and I think um, I, I think it's also the way I, th- I think, and, and it became very apparent on this that I like physically shoot <laughs> if you're like um yeah i found it very hard to not have the camera in my hands you got used to the rhythm of being a dp and yeah it's a different rhythm from being a director as a director it can be three five years you know when you're not on set as a dp you're sometimes going from film i'm always jealous yes I always think the best job is a dp and then it's a director then maybe an actor <laughs> um and so about this film what was the initial what was the eureka moment or the initial spark was it an image a character a theme where yeah. you thought, oh, there's an idea in this. I think this could be a feature. So I'd gone on those of these holidays as a teenager, and we like we gathered at a wedding with some of my teenage mate, mates at the time, and um, and we started to talk about the blowjob scene on stage that we'd witnessed in Magaloo. And um, I, I I remember at the time it's a really vivid memory of mine, and I, I was standing on the pool table in this club watching this happen. And I remember at the time being really shocked inside, but looking around and being like, must pretend to be having a good time because everyone seems to be having a good time. And not until this wedding, I realised that everyone was also doing that. That Everyone was really shocked, but everyone was just pretending that they were having a great time. And so um, that's where it started and, I, and it kind of unravelled from there. It's quite a vivid moment in the film. I was quite shocked by it. Do, you know, do they still do that? Well, we know we tried to shoot in Magaluf and they wouldn't let us because it has such bad press. Right. I think it was one of those things where like it started sexual in terms of like it would be like shots passing towards and it, it kind of escalated into this thing. Okay. Because it is in this town where no one kind of regulates it. No one had been like, wait, wait, what's going on? <laughs> you know, like stopped it. Um so hopefully no, they don't still. Good. <laughs> so you start with that and then I guess you're drawn from your own experiences and memories if been to Magaluf or those sorts of places before and then what did you did it turn into like a two-page synopsis and then into a treatment or did you go straight into a script went straight into script went to like 60 pages um and then developed the last verb quite heavily so the first 60 was quite instinctful and then the last third was like figured out and how long did that take from like I've got this idea I was chatting with some friends until you had finished draft to shoot or to at least present to financiers that you so wanted to shoot? I started writing in lock, the first lockdown basically because I stopped shooting and was like I can't sit still <laughs> after do something um, and then we start well so then probably just as we come out of lockdown sent it to financiers so yeah maybe six months it's really fast yeah yeah I mean, it's great. I'm jealous. I wish I could write that quickly. I mean, it sounds, some projects are like that where you just have, you know, it sounds like in this case, a store of vivid 
memory and imagery yeah. that just sort of came out and that it formed into a coherent story. Uh, I think it's great. I think one of the sort of most successful things about the film, there's like many, but the thing that really struck me was it's how tonally dexterous it is. There's, and I, make, I often think more and more now the sign of a great film is when there is a sort of dynamism in the tone, the audience isn't settled into one place. And in this, you start with so much vitality and a sense of playfulness with the, with the characters. And that first 10 minutes, you're kind of charmed and you're going out with them. And progressively from then on, each scene is sort of modulated and giving you a different tone. There's a horrific hangover. Then there's the euphoria of the next day. There's moments of connection. There's moments of isolation and loneliness. And there's the assault and the trauma that comes with that. But then the jubilation when she meets this new group of friends. And sometimes those switches are happening, not just on a scene-by-scene -scene basis, but within the scenes. And it just felt such a strong part of the DNA of this film. Was that something that you knew at the beginning that you wanted to convey? Or was that very late in the writing process where you thought, oh, this is my angle in, is that it, we're going to follow this very messy experience of this character? No, it always had that kind of um, the humour in it and the like, um, and also that feeling of like not everyone is having the same experience at one time. Like some people are having a great time and some people are, and, and not, well, Tara is not having a good time. Um, but yeah, that, and, and it, for me, it was really important that we're not judgmental on the space and we're not judgmental on the characters around her um, and that we experience it as a teenager would. And for like some of my best memories are from those old days, but they're clouded with these other memories as well. Um, and that ride that you go through, which is just like, yeah, super highs and super lows. Um, and it, it's funny because like, some people talk about the ending of like, you know, how can she have this huge event and then go high again and for me that's like how I've processed stuff in my life and like lived in a way where you just go you do constantly carry these things with you I think it feels very authentic because of that these feelings are quite ephemeral sometimes and it switches it depends you know they're intoxicated you know half the time as well and I felt that rhythm, which just felt so specific, and it just imbued it with a sense of naturalism. Um, and I guess, yeah, is that, I mean, particularly across Mia's performance, the whole cast is great, it's a great ensemble, but what was your process of working with her to track all of the sort of multifaceted nature of that journey? Is it lots of conversations in soft prep? Did you, was it in rehearsal? Presumably, you had to shoot out of order, out of chronological order. So that's a, something to get your head around when you're in production. What was your process? Yeah, we shot really out of order. Um, and so we was always, like, checking just before we got, where have we been, where are we going, how do we, like, bridge that gap of what we, where, you know, oh, we've shot two scenes ahead, so, like, well, she's got to go hit. Like, we all kind of figure that out before we started the scene. Um, but also, so Mia... We cast really early on in the process of a tape, which I was like, she does, she reads two things at the same time. She's high energy, but you can see in her eyes that something's going on. That was what really fascinated me about her. And then um, because we cast her so early, she screen tested with hundreds of actors. And I think weirdly at the time, we were both like, oh, this is hard work. But that was part of the process of getting into right. who she was and how she felt in situations. 
because we'd always, you know, she'd stay in the room and the actor would leave. And we'd always kind of debrief a little bit about it. Like, not not so much about the actor that came in, but about how her character was reacting in that space. And it was a real amazing test of, of what her character was like. That kind of soft prep is so invaluable in creating a performance because you always think when I'm speaking to young filmmakers they're like how do you direct an actor on set and I always try and say to them that that's one part of how you're working with an actor some is in prep of course you're doing rehearsal but sometimes the bit before that when you're getting to know an actor or you're working in uh, an audition situation with them that sometimes it's an explicit conversation sometimes you're just tuning into each other's creative frequencies and I think I had this similar experience with Jessie when I worked with her, where we'd cast her early and then she had been in the room auditioning other people to, to play opposite her. And that, looking back now, the way that you say it, it was actually invaluable for both of us. Yeah, we, don't, we, we only realised it really recently. We were like, oh, actually, that was amazing. It felt painful at the time. But it, yeah, it's really useful. And the, all of the other acts, I mean, across the board, it felt so authentic and natural um, what was your approach? What was your process? Was it extensive rehearsals? Was it allowing them to improvise on set? Were you, I mean, it felt so natural. I assumed in several scenes you had allowed improvisation, but sometimes I've been surprised that actually in a, in a film, every, every line has been scripted. How did you achieve what you put in your film? Yeah, it's pretty much scripted, but there is a few lines thrown in there. And I, I tried to loosen them up to feel that they could throw lines in there. Um, but often that, you know, it's like if you lose it up too much and there's six people improvising, you get nowhere. <laughs> but so it's kind of a fine balance between like some days you'd be like, we're really going to have to stick to the script on this one. Like the seven page zooms across two balconies shooting everyone. I mean, like chaos. <laughs> um, um, so in, in rehearsals, we wrote backstories for everyone. And um, I gave them DV cameras and they interviewed each other as if they were making a documentary about each other. So, like, what's your favourite chat-up line or, you know, like... so. And I guess I hadn't really realised how great that was until there's a few scenes where I was like, I'm going to... We've got the scene. I'm going to run this version on and see what happens. Or let's do it in no dialogue. Or let's do it where you can only talk about your mum. Or, you know, I don't know, whatever it is. And... Um, they would pull out some of this backstory information. Um, there's a scene where they're getting ready after they've been really hungover, and she talks about hair of the dog and her, and her mum, and that that's totally improvised. We've only got one shot of it, and she's just pulled that back from 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 the backstories that we that we wrote together. So she's got great one-liners for the movie. <laughs> um, so yeah, so. I mean, I hadn't thought, actually, yeah, directing, was it six, seven actors? We'll get onto the extras in a bit. But did they have different approaches or were they quite, was it quite harmonious and they all, they needed a similar type of direction? Or what did you have to kind of have different approaches for different performers? Definitely different approaches. And like, I guess you start to realise like, okay, like Mia's really great first take and high energy she can she can dip as well so then you're like okay let's shoot Mia first um or let's yeah you save it for the right moment in what you're covering um but yeah so there were definitely different processes and I mean like you're trying to track all six of them and where they've been and where they're coming where they're going and and then tweaking each performance but with a roaming camera so like trying not to tweak too many of them at the same 
very complicated. Yeah, yeah. It really feels captured. At some moments, I thought you must have set up a situation, given them a kind of loose direction for the scene or an intention, and then step back and observe them. And I mean that as a compliment because to get that sense of naturalism and kind of spontaneity, it's sometimes hard and you, you maybe you've got to build it in the edit a lot or you don't quite get, you know, those spontaneous reactions. So I think that work that you did in prep and I presume they became good friends when they were hanging out with each other, writing backstories, filming each other, you've, it affects the performance, you know, it, it, it was really smart. It's a smaller thing. Well, I mean, it's actually quite hard to achieve, but the sense of drunkenness and the sense of hangover that they're able to convey. And it's, it's sometimes a hard thing for an actor to do where you totally buy it. Is that something you guys talked about? I'm presuming you didn't get like 200 people drunk every no, day. Yeah, and it was one of the big things in the casting process where we were like, okay, and let's do a drunk scene. And it would quickly right. pull actors out of the choices because it's really hard to act drunk. Um, and, um, yeah, so it, it, there was a lot of spinning on the spot. Emily, the producer, was like, why don't they all just spin round? And so it became a thing. It came a kind of like ritual before we started that everyone would spin on the spot and then... You, know, you have to be careful that you're not too dizzy because then you're really over <laughs> overacting it. Um, but also, yeah, it kind of got them into like, I'm not mean it now, I'm drunk. And it, it worked. And that scene, the scene 10 minutes in when they're eating chips on the floor after their first night, I was like, this is really, really good drunk acting. <laughs> I totally, totally bought it. Um, and then on the extras, the first time I watched the film, I was, I really thought that you'd gone into real clubs. It seemed just too observed and captured in a great way. I just thought, wow, how did they get all the release forms for all of those people? What a feat. And then I heard in the Q&A that they were all extras. And I thought, well, that's an even bigger achievement because there's hundreds of people sometimes within a scene. I don't know, you know, that's... I think only Ridley Scott, I know, <laughs> directs that many people <laughs> on a regular so basis. So, yeah, how did you... What was your approach to it? How did you work with your AD team? What were the things that worked? What didn't work? Because it's not just that it had to be extras at a restaurant. They had to be having a big, Good jubilant time. party every single take. You know, every time they're in the background, they're, they're supposed to be drunk and in a state of euphoria. How did you achieve that? Yeah. So we shot all the party scenes in the first two weeks. So like day two, 200 extras. I was like throwing up on set. So like, why have I done this to myself? Um, <laughs> In Greece, they have an amazing system where they have Greek, um, they have extra, they are Greek, but extra casting directors, and they go out and hand castle the extras, and then they, it, you know, rather than calling a like an agency and they sending you like a bunch of faces, they really go and like it, they become cast almost. Um, so we had all these like young kids who were about to leave the island because it was about to be out of season, who kind of became as passionate about the film as the cast were about as oh, we were they were like turning up what, what are we doing today like really excited about it um so that was amazing because i don't think there's many places in the world that you could do that um and they already came with an energy then of, okay because they felt like they'd been cast for the role you know like they, they weren't like it, yeah it was it was a team effort yeah um, but also those casting directors, so there's three of them, and they're, I got really lucky that they're three young party animals, and 
they were, instead of the AD team controlling the crowds, they were controlling the crowds as well, but those three were embedded in the crowds, ramp, like ramping them up and getting them really excited every take and come, coming to me and saying, what's working, what's not working? Okay, we need to lower this person down here. So they became my like extra directors in, but in the mix, you know, they were really in there. That's something that's also hard, even if, I mean, that's great that you had, they were kind of like, hype men and women within the yeah. crowd so that's good because if you had to do that on an individual basis it would be a very long shoot um but you to even be cognizant totally of how well the extras are working whilst you're concentrating on the performance in front of you sometimes that can slow things down because you've got to step aside you've got to look at a take again on a monitor scrutinize everyone in the background it can really draw out a process um and reset everyone and then get them quiet while the performance is going on get them dancing to no music turn the music on, get them dancing, turn the music off, then they go flat. Then you go hide them up again, get the right rhythm. Hopefully they will dance with the right rhythm. Did you find in the edit you were searching for those moments where they they had that energy? Or do you think when you were when you were looking at the footage that it was actually pretty consistent and you didn't need to worry about that so much? It was always kind of there. We didn't have to worry about it too much. There was a couple of moments where you're like, what is that extra up to in the background? But There's always but, one. There's always one. But... Um, but in general, in general, they were really, really good. And, um, you know, the costume designer also did an amazing job of, like, briefing everyone and then picking the people close to the camera to dress in and sort of, like, not having to do the whole crowd but be specific about what they were doing. And the same with with makeup. We'd put a quick tattoo on the back of someone's neck, you know, because they were all Greek as well. And then we'd give them dodgy haircuts and bad tans. And British haircuts and... Brits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's incredible. I just, uh, to do it in what I think was a six-week shoot, I just, yeah, it must have been quite a frenzy to, to get all that to work in front of the camera, but you've got to maintain your focus. I think the because we did it in the first two weeks, everyone, it was like, all right, these two weeks are going to be really hard. Right, so all the club scenes were done in that first two weeks. So the prep... You chose like, to do the hard bit at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, do um, and then so working with your HODs, uh, you'd work with your DP's name is Nicholas. Nicholas Calagini, yeah. How did you guys meet, and what was those initial conversations? Yeah, so I was looking for really good handheld. I'm quite fussy about handheld. I really hate wobble cam. Um, and he comes from documentary background and has really good handheld. Um, and I kind of wanted to broach it like a documentary. I didn't want to have too many lights up. I wanted to be able to freeform. I wanted them to be able to improvise and follow it. Um, so he felt like the... And he was really passionate about the script. So he felt like the right person for the job. So, but you, you did it traditional way. You sent it out to a few people. You had meetings and it was just a good chemistry. Yeah, yeah. And what was... Uh, so you had you know, that initial conversation was partly about it being observational and a documentary aesthetic... What, how did that evolve as you guys were working together? What were the were there any reference points where you or Yeah, so I've got a crazy document, it's like six hundred pages long and it's every shot so shot list and then every shot on Artemis and then um the location, the reference, what the cast are wearing, the production design. And it goes on and on and on wow. and on for every single scene. I don't know if I've heard of a <laughs> director book that's been so thorough that's impressive is that something that you'd done ahead of hiring people or you were do it you were in process with this you'd done we did it in prep 
We did it in six weeks, yeah. So it was a team effort to create this book. Yeah, yeah. I think you should release it. You should get it published. There'd be so many people that, because I'm so curious about director's prep. I don't know, there's like a, what's a famous example. Francis Ford Coppola did a book when he was making The Godfather and he took the whole, the whole of Mario Puzo's book and he put it on a page and he wrote around it all of wow. everything that he wanted to do, whether it was extras, what what would be the pitfalls for every scene, what not to do, where the cliches are. And it's it's wow. released and it's like, a, it's a really great document, but very there's very few examples of directors releasing their prep work. I think yeah. a lot of people would be interested to read. I would read your 600 page prep book. You get bored very quickly with that shot one. Shot two. Also with a film like this, it's so feels so captured. It's impressive that you've done that because usually, I mean, something like this, you, there's a shot list, you know the story beats. Why did you need to go through such a thorough process knowing that actually you wanted a very observational aesthetic? I, I, I guess I guess it just, I, I didn't want anything to feel like a mistake even though it should always feel like a mistake. <laughs> it's like you have to build the perfection to then unperfect it. Yeah. Yeah, I know, it makes sense. I mean, it feels very, it feels like captured um, rather than they're like, I don't feel like there's mistakes in it. It feels like the camera pans at exactly the right time and sees the right cutaway at the right time. So it makes sense actually that you've got to plan it so rigorously. Yeah, and like, so so all the cost, all the, the cut, there's like a really thought out color palette behind everything, like orange is danger. And green is sky's colour, and then she puts it on Tara. It's like the pressure. Right. And there's predators sewn into Paddy's clothes. And you don't really see them, but when he puts his hand over her face at the end, there's like a scorpion on his ring. And then Sky's got a snake on her ring when she's in bed at the end, you see it. So there's all these like kind of hidden gems that I love in filmmaking when you kind of watch it for the third time and you're like, oh yeah. Wow. <laughs> and then to jump uh, to the post just briefly. The edit, or let's say the very beginning of the edit, is sometimes the toughest time for a lot of directors. I think Charlotte Wells said her film felt like a disaster when she saw the assembly. Martin Scorsese has said that he wants to throw up when he watches it. The Coen brothers want to slit their wrists when they watch theirs. How traumatic <laughs> so on that scale was <laughs> your experience of watching the assembly? So, we, so I watched the first assembly the week before we wrapped, which... And I think left the producer 25 minutes calls or something. It's like, what have we done? <laughs> this is terrible. Um, and was some, there was some scenes I was like, we need to go and reshoot that. Because it's terrible. Um, and we didn't. Um, luckily. Um, yeah, it was pretty bad. It's pretty bad. And did, what do you get? Because I find the first half of an edit is quite a painful experience. And then sometimes the film, hopefully the film comes together. And then it's not like it's downhill sailing after that. But it feels like you're more, you're just, you're making the film work. You, you enjoy going into the edit every day because it doesn't feel like it's such an uphill struggle. I was like waking up in stress at 4 a.m. every night. Up like, until picture lock. Up until the week we finished. Um, I went back in after picture lock because I was still sweating. Um, I found the edit really, really, really hard because I just, the, the possibility of being endless, I found that really stressful. Whereas on a shoot, there's, there's, there is a limited amount of time, a limited amount of things you can do, lenses you can put on. You know, like there's kind of a, as much as there is lots you can do, there's capacity to it as well. Yeah. Whereas in the edits, like 
But what if I'm missing this huge revelation that we just haven't got to yet? In a way, then, your options are limited in the edit, which is sometimes a frustration because sometimes you've had to shoot a scene quickly and you didn't get that close-up or you didn't get that wide. That can also be a frustration that you want to go back and you want to do a pick-up or a reshoot. And most often the time, you don't get... You don't get that opportunity. Was there anything that you dropped that you couldn't fit into the film? Were there, is there many scenes on the cutting room floor that... Yeah, so we made these... So in each club scene, we did a music video type shot scene. So like in the first night out, all the, everyone in the club is frozen <clears throat> and the camera tracks through all the frozen bodies handheld and finds Tara dancing alone, only person dance, dancing in the club. And it's a reference to... ASAP Rocky video I did with my friend Frank and then um, we shot her and Paddy dancing alone in the club after the first assault which we were going to cut between full club and them alone in the club and then we also shot shot in the white party um, one frame a second everyone dancing and then leaving the club and leaving her alone in the club and we just couldn't get them in because they just tonally wouldn't gel with the film they were it was a different approach that... yeah there's not many wides in the film and and um, so the white party one felt like a real like it's a, it's a big wide of the club felt really like shocking, and then we almost got the empties in the in there psychologically they almost kind of worked, um, but just it felt like it was so real that when you whenever you put something it really distracted from the reality. Of it. I hadn't thought that there aren't many wides, and now thinking of it, there's the. The, the top shot of the dick-shaped pool. There's the shot down the middle of the street when we don't know where Tara is and then we see her walking towards us. I feel like there's one in the last third somewhere, but really you're talking about a handful of wides. Yeah. Was that... A, and if someone told me that's how they're going to shoot their film without any wides, I would be worried that it wouldn't be cinematic. Strangely, that doesn't, that doesn't happen in your film. It feels very immersive and very cinematic. You don't miss them. So what was your decision to not use them? Um, was that, so, yeah, was it a conscious thing just to stay very close and tethered to the characters? Yeah, the whole film shot on a 40mm uh, lens. Um, on an LF, so it's like more like a 32. Um, and I kind of just wanted to be really portrait on her the whole, the whole time and feel it through her eyes and feel it through her emotion. And I'm really bad at shooting wide as a cinematographer. It's like a, it's a thing that I've... Um, Apart from Scrapper, actually, Scrapper's mostly wild. Um, uh, so, yeah, I just really wanted to, like, read her face the whole time, and I thought as long as we're getting that and seeing what she's looking at, then we'll be all right. Work. Maybe if you had shot them, then they would end up in the edit because you'd shot them, and it would have sort of generalised the film in a way because you would have these wides or establishing shots to lean on. So I think, in a way, making a strong choice at the beginning um, worked out. Uh, so really, lastly, I think we only have 30 more seconds. Uh, can you tell us what you're doing next? And do you, are you going to write? Are you reading scripts? Are you directing? Are you going to DP? Going to DP still. Going to direct, hopefully. Um, going to keep writing. That's the plan. I'm trying to write as much as possible and then just figure out what, what it is. Yeah. Cool. I think we all can't wait to see what's next from you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. 
You can hear plenty more directors in conversation by subscribing on the usual streaming platforms. Follow us on social media and find out more about us at directors.uk.com. <laughs>